So this morning, we are furthering our study through Nehemiah. We're going through chapter 6 and uh, chapter 7, and I really wanted to, there's a lot to cover in these pages, and I'm excited to share, so I really just wanted to jump right into it and get going. So let's take a moment now and, and just pray. Heavenly Father, God, we come to you now as, as an act of worship. We open up your word, your holy word, and we, um, we learn from it. God, these, these older stories that can sometimes seem so far away from where we're at today, God, it still reveals something about who you are, something about how you interact with your people. There's a constant thread of just faithfulness and provision and grace that really does speak to us today. So God, we commit this time to you. We want to commit this time to you and just ask that you are a part of this, God, that your spirit stirs in us, that you reveal yourself to us in a special way this morning. Thank you for the privilege that we have to dive into your word to know you more. And we recognize that it's only made possible through the power of your son, Jesus. So we pray these things in his mighty, mighty name. Amen. Amen. So what I'd like to do is, like I said, we're looking at Nehemiah chapter 6 and 7. And what I'd like to do is just start reading right with chapter 6, kind of where our story left off. You remember at this point, uh, Nehemiah is rebuilding the wall, but the people are are feeling opposition from every side. At one point, um, someone says that that wherever we turn, the enemy is going to attack us. So remember, too, as they're building the walls, the the text says that that they they had a a sword in one hand and and a brick in the other. So they're literally on guard in one hand and building this wall with the other. So there's great opposition that the, that the Israelites are facing, that Nehemiah is facing as they're rebuilding the wall. And that's where chapter 6 picks up. And I want to read through this, and I want to pause at a verse that I think, um, that, uh, I think that our whole time together is really going to hinge on. So starting with uh, chapter 6, verse 1. It says, When word came to Sembala, Tobiah, Geshem the Arab, and the rest of our enemies, so these are all their enemies, that I had rebuilt the wall and not a gap was left in it. Though up to that time I had not set the doors in the gates, Senbalit and Geshem sent me a message saying, come let us meet together in one of the villages on the plain of Ono. But they were scheming to harm me. So there Nehemiah's discernment comes through. He realizes that they were scheming to harm him. So it says that he sent messengers to them with this reply. I'm carrying on a great project. And I cannot go down. It's like he's saying, like, can't you see I'm busy here? I cannot go down. Why should the work stop while I leave it and go down to you? Four times they sent me the same message, and each time I gave them the same answer. So here we have this image of the wall going up, and the gates aren't installed yet, so the doors, it's like they don't have a front door. So the enemies around them, I imagine, are starting to feel the pressure of like, oh, this is really going to happen. This is really close. So they start sending these messages to lure Nehemiah out because they're plotting to kill him. So here, Nehemiah's up against a potential kidnapping murder plot. Nehemiah picks it out in his, in his discernment. He realizes this. It says, then the fifth time, Symbolit sent his aid to me with the same message, and in his hand was an unsealed letter in which was written. It is reported among the nations, and Geshem says it's true, 
that you and the Jews are plotting to revolt, and therefore you are building the wall. Moreover, according to these reports, you are about to become their king. You've appointed prophets to make this proclamation about you in Jerusalem. There's a king in Judah. Now this report, we'll get back to the king, the king of Persia. So come, let us meet together. It says, Nehemiah, I sent him this reply. Nothing like you were saying is happening. You're just making it up out of your head. So Nehemiah is coming up against a plot to kidnap and potentially murder him. And now this is sort of like a form of blackmail. He's getting letters from his opposition saying, this is what the people are saying. And I'm going to, if you're not careful, I'm going to send this word back to the king of Persia. So here he's coming up against blackmail, but again, he opposes it. He says, they were, tr- they were all trying to frighten us, thinking their hands will get too weak for the work and will not be completed. It says, Nehemiah says, but I prayed. Now strengthen my hands. And following that, it says, one day I went to the house of Shemaiah, son of Deliah, and the son of Mehetabel, who was shut in at his home. This is a prophet. He said, let us meet in the house of God inside the temple and let us close the temple doors because men are coming to kill you. By night, they're coming to kill you. But I said, should a man like me run away or should someone like me go into the temple to save his life? I will not go. I realized that God had not sent him, but that he had prophesied against me because Tobiah and Sambalat had hired him. He had been hired to intimidate me so that I would commit a sin by doing this. And then they would give me a bad name to discredit me. So it was, it, it, under the old covenant, Nehemiah could not enter the temple, the Holy of Holies. That place was, was, was given for priests to be in there. So what he realizes is that this false prophet is coming before him and trying to lure him into the temple, kind of like catch him in a snare. So Nehemiah prayed, remember Tobiah, Zambalit, my God, because of what they have done, remember also the prophet Noadiah and how she and the rest of the prophets have been trying to intimidate me. So the wall was, compl- so the wall was completed on the 25th of Elu in 52 days. So here, Nehemiah is coming up against more opposition, a plot to potentially kidnap and murder him, a plot to blackmail him, to slander him, a plot to, to even make him turn from his God, the covenant that he had with his God in disobedience and hide himself in the temple. Nehemiah picks up on all of these things. And then he prays one of those prayers that Greg mentioned, imprecatory prayers where he's praying against his enemies. And it says that on the 25th of Elu, in in 52 days, so in little less than two months, the wall was completed. So now we get to verse 16. And this is the one I really want us to hone in on in our time together this morning. It says, when all our enemies heard about this, all the surrounding nations were afraid. They lost their self-confidence because they realized this work had been done with the help of our God. When all our enemies heard about this, all the surrounding nations, they lost their self-confidence. Some translations say they just lost their self-esteem because they realized that in 52 days, this wall was built with the help of their God. What's interesting is, from this point forward in the story, we hear nothing about these threats. This imminent danger and doom, other than one who was more, he was more entwined with business dealings and the political side of things, Tobiah, 
We hear about him at the very end of the story, but, but all of this, like one brick in one hand and a sword in the other, after this verse, all of that's gone. Because, and it says, because the enemies realized that this work had been done with the help of their God. That's quite fascinating to me. And that's something that we could read into. And I think as we're reading Old Testament stories, we can get to that point in the story, and it's like, okay, that kind of fits with Scripture. That makes sense. But that's a pretty big deal when you think of it. And I think this is a very important part of this story. Because now from here on out, the people start to populate the city, and the people really turn towards worship. There's no more mention of this threat. Why is that? What does that mean for this story? I think to us it feels a little farther off than it would for people back in Old Testament times. And what it brought to mind for me, what I want to do is I want to turn back to another story that these people would have known back in the book of Joshua. So in Joshua chapter 7, there's a story of battle. There's a story of defeat. And this is all, this is a part of our church's history of our people's history in the Old Testament where they were engaged in what's called holy war and God was bringing them into the promised land that he had for them. And what we find in this story in Joshua is kind of like the adverse effect or the adverse perspective of God being with them. Whatever happened in Nehemiah, we're gonna see the flip side of that in this story in Joshua. So this is what it meant for the people when they heard something, when they heard a story being told and they said, for our God was with us and our enemies turned away. This gives it a little bit of perspective. We see in the story of the battle of Ai in Joshua 7. So they had just crossed the Jordan and they've just um, defeated Jericho. Everyone knows the story of the battle of Jericho, right? The walls came tumbling down. No one really lifted a finger other than to blow some trumpets, right? So the walls came tumbling down there. They're, They've defeated Jericho. They're moving on to the next city. And when they get to this city, they, they experience defeat. The story tells us that, that there were 36 men who died in this initial battle of Ai. And they didn't take over the city. Now, we learned from the story that there were reasons behind that. Part of it was their unfaithfulness and their disobedience to God as they were engaging in this holy war alongside of them. You can see, too, that coming from Jericho, it, it just seems like the army got a little cocky, and they kind of stepped out on their own rather than having God go before them like they did for Jericho. So they're defeated, and they lose 36 men. We know in, in chapter 8 of Joshua that, that when they do finally take the city, Joshua pulls together 30,000 of his best fighters to defeat this city. So let's hold that in perspective perspective that there's an army of at least 30,000 best fighters that could have taken the city, they lose 36. Doesn't seem like a big deal, right? Seems like a normal casualty of war to lose 36 men. But what we see in Joshua chapter 7 is his response. So if you look here in Joshua chapter 7, starting at the end of verse 5, says they struck down 36 of their men. They chased them back. At this, the heart of the people melted in fear and became like water. So they find out that they have 36 casualties and the people said, the people's hearts melted in fear 
and became like water. And then it says, Joshua tore his clothes, fell face down to the ground before the ark of the Lord, remaining there till evening. The elders of Israel did the same and sprinkled dust on their heads. And Joshua said, Alas, sovereign Lord, why did you ever bring this people across the Jordan to deliver us into the hands of the Amorites to destroy us if only we had been content to stay on the other side of the Jordan? There's so much distraught over losing 36 men. Why? Why is Joshua and the elders tearing off their clothes, saying, why did we even come over here if this was going to happen? Why did they say that? Because the expectation in holy war was that God was going before you. The expectation in holy war is that there are no casualties. There are no casualties. So the fact that they lost 36 men was an an indication to them that, that, that God was not with us. God was not with us. So look at Nehemiah. Fast forward ahead to Nehemiah. And it's that same understanding, right? These enemies were coming up against Nehemiah for the past two chapters. They're taunting. They're threatening to kidnap, to murder. But there's something about the story of Nehemiah where this same God that that Joshua was mourning, the same God where where it was was indicated back in in Joshua that, that he wasn't with them because of these casualties. Fast forward to Nehemiah and he was there. And his enemies knew it. So much so that it says in chapter 16, Uh, in verse 16, that they were afraid. They lost their self-confidence. They lost their self-esteem because they realized that the work had been done with the help of their God. No mention of the enemies from that point on in the story of Nehemiah. There's no mention of casualties with all of the oppression that they were experiencing from their enemies around them. There's no mention of casualties. And like I said, from this point forward in the story, everything shifts. Their hearts turn toward worship. This is a simple little verse in the story, and I think it's one that I could easily just sort of glaze over and just sort of kind of write off as like, yeah, this sounds like Old Testament storyline, right? God was with them. But for me, what I struggle with is, is it ends up feeling detached. It ends up feeling like a different world, a different experience, just something that I wouldn't understand. Whether the story of Joshua and this idea of losing 36 men just bringing you to so much distraught because of what that meant, or Nehemiah, no casualties, Simple verse, enemies just lost their self-esteem, they feared, and so they took off and we don't hear from them. But this is a lot closer than 
that for us. It should seem very close for us. Because the same God that was with them lives in us. And I believe that that's what this portion of the story and this verse really spoke to me for this time together, was that the presence of God proclaims victory. Again, that sounds like, a, okay, Chris, like, yeah, that sounds like something a pastor would say on a Sunday morning, the presence of God proclaims victory, right? That's something we've heard before. And, but through the study and just comparing it to Old Testament experience, whether Joshua or Nehemiah, of the presence of God and what that meant to their lives and to their success, it's a lot different weight on that simple statement. The presence of God proclaims victory. I don't know what the enemies of Nehemiah, I don't know what they were experiencing in that moment that their hearts started to fear and they started to lose self-confidence. I love that part of the story too because it's not like God came down and sort of great beaming light said, depart from the city or struck them down or whatever, you know. You got Nehemiah's enemies kind of doing these head games, sending these letters. You know, we might send this to the king. Or why don't you come in the temple? Yeah, come in the temple, hide in here. All these head games. And I love that, that the way that God moves through these enemies is nothing overt, but it's in their heart. So they start losing their self-esteem. They start feeling that self-doubt. Because God goes for the heart. And they're bumping into the power of God in their own hearts. But whatever it was that they experienced, you know, the Bible doesn't say. It doesn't say that the stones started glowing or, you know, it just says that they lost heart and then we don't hear from them again. But that presence in that moment was victory. Just like for Joshua, was defeat. Those 36 casualties meant the presence of God had departed from them from their, for their own unfaithfulness and disobedience, we find out. But that made all the difference. Those, what those 36 men meant for Joshua made all the difference. So the presence of God proclaims victory. It's a simple truth, but it's one that I find I don't really, I know it, but do I really, really know it? Because the same God that is interacting with Nehemiah's enemies is the same God that lives in us, right? And that's what we glean from this story. Is that the, the power of God in this story is the same power that we bump into and that we experience today. Looks different, right? We're not, we won't know what it's like to have a sword in one hand and a stone in the other hand and, and be rebuilding a wall for sure. Maybe not literally, maybe figuratively. The presence of God proclaims victory. There's two things I think that we can take away from that statement and from that story. The first is around that word presence. The same God who is with them in this story of Nehemiah is the same God that is with us. The Bible is the story of God's faithfulness to his people, ultimately peaking at the birth of Jesus and culminating at his return. 
So when we read the story of Nehemiah, we look at it with an understanding that the same God who is with them is with us. Look at 1 Peter 2, 4, and 5. I don't know, when, when Peter was writing this to the church, did he have the story of Nehemiah in the back of his head? Where he says, as you come to him, the living stone, rejected by all, choos- uh, by all humans, but chosen by God and precious to him. He's talking about Jesus being the living stone. You also, like living stones, are built up into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Whatever Nehemiah's enemies saw in those stones is in us. Was Peter thinking of that as he wrote that verse? I don't know. Look at 1 Corinthians 3.16. Do you know that you yourselves are God's temple and God's spirit dwells in your midst? A lot of times I heard this verse quoted as a, as a verse that's, that's talking about why we should care for our bodies. But what this verse is saying is that in Old Testament times, there, were, there was a temple that they would set up, and that was literally a place where if you wanted to be in the presence of God, you could go there and you could literally be in the presence of God. But what this verse is telling us is that the Spirit dwells in us, and now we are the temple. That same power is within us. And finally, John 14, 16 and 17. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate to help you and be with you forever, the spirit of truth. The world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him, for he lives with you and will be in you. The presence of God proclaims victory. And what's that presence? That that same God that was with them lives in us. I'm challenged by that. How much of my day-to-day do I actually how many, how many times do I read these stories and actually connect to that truth? The second thing is this. It proclaims victory. It proclaims. There's due emphasis. This is an area that I, I know that I need to work on and maybe some of you can relate. But as Christians, we need to practice acknowledging God's presence through the process and in the outcome. The presence of God proclaims victory. We'll see in the story of Nehemiah in the coming weeks that, that after this chapter and they start populating the city, what's the people's response is they worship because they know what God has done, what God did for them. And that's what this story reminds us. So in the here and now, in the day-to-day, this is a tricky thing because We know that as Christians, not everything is rainbows and unicorns, right? There are hard times. But we need to proclaim God in the process and in the outcome. In other words, do we use the word like coincidence a little too freely? Or do we actually proclaim victory? Do we actually proclaim the mighty work of our God in our day-to-day lives? Is that a skill or a discipline? That's one that I feel like I need to learn to do better. It's proclaiming the work of God. Just as Nehemiah was a shared story, we too need to share our stories. Here's another thing I'm convicted of. 
when I think of proclaiming victory through the process. So we have these Old Testament stories that are stories of victory. But I, I seldom fill the gap between Old Testament time and Chris Lindbergh here today. I need to make it a point to share my stories with my friends, with my church, with my kids. Proclaiming victory. Just as Nehemiah was a shared story, we need to share our stories. So I wanted to take a moment now and I wanted to share a story. One of victory. It's the story of a three-year-old boy who's actually a part of our congregation. His name's Mason. Three-year-old Mason was born with stage five kidney disease. He's been listed on the kidney transplant list since November 2019. He was put on dialysis July 2020. Mason's also the foster child for a family in our church, the Cones. He has a complicated blood type, so it was really hard to find a donor. This past Monday, uh, not this past Monday, Monday, February 1st, our women's Bible study was getting together for the first time, and, and Cassie, the mother, was a part of that group. So Monday, February 1st, she sent out a prayer request for Mason. Shared Mason's story with some of the ladies in the group. <clears throat> On Wednesday, February 3rd, the Cones got a call saying, we got a kidney for Mason. And I remember telling Renee, you got to share this with the group. There's no coincidence there. How easy would it have been for the story to go something like, we got really lucky, or wouldn't you know that this happened? We finally got a donor. We've been waiting. No. As it turns out, and, and I was talking to Cassie about this, as far as the whole process, that Monday, they start praying for Mason for the kidney to arrive on Wednesday. But Monday, this person was going on life support. They ended up donating both their kidneys and their heart as well. But just as they were beginning to reach out to God and to pray for kidney formation, God was preparing in his own way that donor to be there for them. There's no coincidence there. Those are the type of stories that we need to share that proclaim victory. Mason's still in the hospital, I believe, but he's doing well. So proclaiming victory in the process. The presence of God proclaims victory. We need to acknowledge the presence of God. We need to practice proclaiming victory. I'm convicted of this lately. Because the beauty of it is that same power living with us, that same power a part of who we are, God's Spirit living with us, 
is we're already, as New Testament believers, we're all already proclaiming that victory in Jesus. Amen? We're Joshua, the story of Joshua and casualties were a sign of defeat. Story of Nehemiah, no casualties. The story of Jesus being a part of God's kingdom here on earth. Even in death, there are no casualties. It's victory in Jesus. And if this is something that you haven't experienced or maybe you're watching online, then we want to encourage you to reach out. There might be an opportunity for you to pray with somebody. If you're visiting us here, you can email prayer at communitycovenant.church or maybe pull one of us aside at the end of the gathering. If this is something that you want to know more about this victory that we're able to proclaim, then we want to join in that journey with you. We want to have conversations with you. The presence of God proclaims victory. The same God that was with them in the story of Nehemiah is with us. And as Christians, we need to practice acknowledging God's presence through the process and in the outcome. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your presence here. The power of your presence in our midst. God, we want to acknowledge that. Acknowledge the victory that we receive in knowing you. God, in in moments or seasons of life where we may feel surrounded, where we may feel like the enemies everywhere we turn, let us be reminded of the story of Nehemiah. Let us be reminded of that one simple verse that says, when you're in the presence of our enemies, God, they flee. Let that remind us of the same victory that we experience in Jesus. I pray that that's an encouragement to us. Let us be there for one another, celebrating your presence in our lives. God, help us to be a church that that makes it a habit to share your presence, to proclaim that victory with one another. God, what a sweet truth it is to know that you are with us. We thank you for your son, Jesus, who makes this all possible, this unity that we experience, this love, forgiveness, faithfulness that we experience. We pray all of these things in his mighty, mighty name. Amen.